Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles, please, to St. Matthew chapter 6. And we will look at verse 9 again as we continue our study uh, through the Lord's Prayer. I appreciate the choir singing that beautiful anthem with the Lord's, uh, the entire Lord's Prayer in it. At the rate we're going, you can continue to sing that anthem till Christmas, and it'll still fit. Uh, don't have to practice as much that way. Now you sing whatever uh, Corey and the Lord tell you to. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful for your word which you have spoken to us, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would come and speak to us. We pray that you would drive away every distraction that would turn us, uh, our minds and our thoughts, our hearts away, uh, our attention away from you. We pray that you would drive back the, uh, the powers of darkness that would oppose uh, your word. Uh, and we pray that by your spirit that you would work uh, in us, that you would open our ears, that we would hear your word, that you would open our eyes, that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. We pray that we would uh, hear from our Lord Jesus Christ and follow him and offer our hearts to him promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Look up. The longest prayer that Jesus himself prayed that's recorded in Scripture is in John 17, a well-known prayer. And in that prayer... Jesus addressed the Father simply as Father with no adjective at the beginning. And then also later in the prayer, he addressed him as Holy Father and Righteous Father. But here in the Lord's Prayer, in the model prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven. Look back at verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, Jesus was specifically referring to pagan rituals as we saw last time, but there's a general principle there that we should not use meaningless words in prayer or say things just because they sound good. There was a reason Jesus taught us to say and pray the words in heaven. Those two words are full of meaning. John Calvin said, 
the only persons who duly and properly gird themselves to pray are, are those who are so moved by God's majesty that freed from earthly cares and affections, they come to pray. And the right, R-I-T-E, right, of raising hands, back in, in that day, they, they lifted up hands to pray and, and looked up rather than bowing their heads and, and looking down. We won't get into the posture, different postures for prayer. Uh, it's certainly biblical to lift up holy hands and lift up one's eyes uh, to pray. But he said the, the, the right of raising the hands means that men remember they are far from move, removed from God unless they raise their thoughts on high. As it is also said in the psalm, to thee I have lifted up my soul. The scripture quite often uses this expression to lift up in prayer. Expression of all uses, lift up in prayer. In order that those who wish God to hear them may not settle down. In short, the more generously God deals with us, gently summon us, summoning us to unburden our cares into his bosom, the less excusable we are if his splendid and incomparable benefit does not outweigh all else with us and draw us to him so that we apply our minds and effort zealously to prayer. That's a lot, but listen to this last statement. This cannot happen. In other words, we, we can't really get free from the things that preoccupy us and really come to God and pray unless the mind stoutly wrestling with these hindrances rises above them. Jesus is teaching us when we pray to be moved to pray by the majesty of God. We will not be properly prepared to pray until we are so moved by his majesty as to lift up our souls and our thoughts to him. We must wrestle stoutly, Calvin says, with all earthly hindrances that would pull our attention back down from on high and rise above them. Look up. Let's get to it. First, we see the majesty of God. The majesty of God. Uh, look at it again. First line of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. Uh, Calvin again says that he is in heaven is added. From this, from the words, in heaven, we are not immediately to reason that he is bound, shut up, and surrounded by the circumference of heaven. 
For Solomon confesses that the heavens of heaven cannot contain him. And he himself says through the prophet that heaven is his seat and the earth is his footstool. So it's not as, as though God is, is shut up, closed up in one spot. That is heaven. That's not what it means. Calvin goes on to say, and I, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm not just reading uh, uh, Calvin to you. I'm trying to, as they say today, process it. But he, he says that, that the point is that God is not limited to one location. He is, as we say, omnipresent. But our minds are so crass that they can't even conceive of the greatness of God's unspeakable glory. Consequently, he says, it has been signified to us by heaven, for we can behold nothing more sublime or majestic than this. And God is set beyond all place so that when we would seek him, we must rise above. All perception of body and soul. Those two words in heaven bring to our attention that God is above all corruption or change. He holds and controls the entire universe by his power. He is of infinite greatness, incomprehensible being, boundless power, and everlasting immortality. Our thought must be raised higher when God is spoken of, lest we dream up anything earthly or physical about him, lest we measure him by our small measurements, or conform his will to our emotion. At the same time, our confidence in God must be stirred up since heaven and earth are ruled by his power. Now, that's all from John Calvin, Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 40. For you uh, uh, nerds that like to read that, Look all that up. Jesus began his teaching on prayer by emphasizing that we pray to our Father in heaven, in heaven, in order to show us that we must lift up our thoughts and our affections and our desires off of this world. Now we are to pray for many things in this world. We're told to pray in this very prayer for daily bread. That's a very earthly, physical thing that sustains physical life and health. We are to pray for His will to be done in earth or on earth. But if we come to God 
And we are so wrapped up in and preoccupied with these earthly matters that our attention is given to them and not him. We're really not praying. To put it as simply as possible, the God to whom we are praying must be more important to us than the things about which we are praying. Or else we're not praying. We're just nagging. We pray because of so many things we need. Our loved ones need. Our friends need. But our own neediness should put us completely in awe of the independence of God. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. He and he alone is truly and fully independent. The theologians, at least the good ones, most of them are terrible, but the few good ones say that God is from himself or of himself. He had no beginning, and he has no end. He's unchanging and unchangeable from everlasting to everlasting. Every day we learn something we did not know. You realize the most slow-witted human being on earth, the worst student on earth, learns something new every day. It may be as simple as it's cooler today than it was yesterday, but he didn't know it before. We can guess what tomorrow will be like. We can make educated guesses, highly informed guesses, but we will not know what tomorrow will really hold until we get there. Not God. He already knows. God has never learned anything. Never. He's never learned a thing. The smartest humans are the ones who are the most teachable and have learned the most. God's knowledge and wisdom are infinite. And yet he has never, ever learned a thing because he's already known everything. I have heard, I've not read it myself, but I have heard that there is a theologian today who would call himself an evangelical, Bible-believing, Reformed theologian. And he has said that in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned and were hiding from the Lord, and the Lord called out, where are you? This, quote, theologian says, God said, where are you? Because he really did not know where they were. If he really believes that, 
then may God have mercy on his soul. I have called out my children many times, and I'm fixing to call out one of them right now. I have called out my children many times. Where are you? When I knew exactly where they were. I was giving them an opportunity to come forward before I administered justice. That's what God was doing when he said, where are you? He knew exactly where he was. We studied it last week. Okay. But look at verse 8 again. Verse 8. Therefore do not be like them. That's talking about the heathen. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. God knows everything. He always has. He knows what we need before we ask. He is all powerful indestructible, unhurtable. We come to God and pray because we hurt and suffer. Our loved ones are hurting and suffering. Not God. You know, if someone is impossible to put up with, we say he's insufferable. Well, God is not insufferable, not like that. But he is not able to suffer. He doesn't have passions like we do. He does not. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Just I'm have to take a minute. Would you mind taking him to the nursery to his mama, please? Thank you. He does not, God does not love us because something in us stirred a passion in him. He loves us simply because he is love. We know that God has wrath, but his wrath is perfectly settled and just. He doesn't fly off the handle in a rage. He is absolutely and perfectly limitless. He is beyond our comprehension. We can only apprehend God. But we can never come anywhere close to comprehensive knowledge of him. If we're really going to pray like we ought to pray, we've got to get our attention off of our needs and weaknesses and hurts, and on to the overwhelming majesty of God. He is what we need. The majesty of God. Secondly and finally, we see heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness. Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to be heavenly minded people. The things about which we pray, God's purpose is to use those things to draw us closer to him. Whatever suffering, 
whatever trials he sends, he has a purpose for them. And ultimately, his purpose is to break us free from the love of this world and make us more heavenly minded. To feel less need for anything in this world and more need for God himself. But you know, if if we are not heavenly minded people, our purpose in prayer is simply to try to use God to make the problem go away. Then when it's gone, we don't need him anymore. Pray for healing, absolutely. But say two people are sick with the same illness. One gets healed, but does not get any closer to God through the sickness. The other one got worse and died. but got closer than ever to God through it. For which one did it really work out better? How do we become heavenly-minded people? Scripture tells us in many places, but one in particular is in the third chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, you might uh, want to turn over there and look at it. Most of it is on top of your bulletin if you don't want don't to flip it, flip around in your Bible. But Colossians chapter 3, and verses 1 to 3. Colossians 3, 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, look up. Notice he says, if you were raised with Christ, not if you will be raised with Christ. We will be raised at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Our bodies will be resurrected at the last day. But Paul says the believer already has been raised with Christ. When Jesus died and was raised, his people were in him. But when we come to faith in Christ, real faith in him, in our lifetime, his death and resurrection is applied to us by the Holy Spirit who works faith in us. The Holy Spirit raises us to a spiritual resurrection when he brings us into Christ and works faith in us. And Christ is in heaven. He's on the throne at the right hand of God. Paul says, 
Our life is hidden with Christ in God. The things that matter most about us are not where we are, but where Jesus Christ is. When he was on the cross, we were with him. When he was in the grave, we were with him. When he was raised on the third day, we were with him. And when he went up to heaven, we were with him. And now he is there at the right hand of God. And therefore, heaven should be where our attention and our affections are directed because he is our life and that's where he is. You know, we've all been in some situation in our life where we've said, my heart isn't in this. And if we are in Christ, truly in Christ by faith, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in us, our heart cannot be in this world. Paul says, set your mind on things above. Jesus says, pray our Father in heaven. Set your mind on things above. Have you been raised with Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him? Look up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.